You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio. You're listening to Fisher Family. You look like you're having the worst time you've ever I had. I didn't mean to. <laughs> I was just trying to set up how I'm going to make fun of how many emails you have. Don't think I've forgotten about that. Listeners, get ready for a really, really relatable segment to your lives. Mm-hmm. Sam's personal Gmail inbox count. Guess how many people I want you to like? think of a number. Think of a ridiculous number it's, and then triple it. Listen, we all get a little... Out of whack out of with whack? our emails. I've known you for a year and a half, and your email inbox has gone up. Like, I think when we started dating, it was at 1,200 emails. Are these spam? Oh, yeah, it's, it's way higher than that now. Are these spam? Listen, a lot of people are trying to get in touch with Sam Dingman. I don't remember that. I, a lot of people mm-hmm. send in a little note. I'm talking about a bakery I went to in Pasadena once. They want me to know they got vegan pastries on sale this weekend. Can I eat them? No, because I don't live there. Something I really don't like is that places that use Square, if you buy something there once, they automatically sign you up for their mailing list. That's so inefficient. Do I unsubscribe? Uh, Who has time to click those things? I wouldn't say inefficient i would definitely say annoying it's very efficient on their end well except that they're emailing me who was there for literally one weekend in 2019 but they know that you'll come back they know that you'll recommend people i shan't go back they're at the top of mind top of mind top of email list they harvested my personal information like so many lemons from a grove that's a preview of coming attractions on this very episode oh my god that was pretty fun. We didn't finish introducing ourselves. Yes, who are you? I'm Sam Dingman. I'm Adrian Bain. Hello again, Adrian. Going back to our running conversation about the color green. Oh, yes. Yes. Adrian yes, said but- something mm-hmm. yesterday when the microphones were not on mm-hmm. that must be recorded. What color is the hearse? It's green. It's green. It's green. It's a bright green. It is a lime green. It is a, oh my fucking God, what is driving by me green? Now, the issue of green in Six Feet Under. What's up with that? Is something that we're going to have to have an ongoing conversation about. And we would love to hear from you, friends, about what you think. FFG at WALT.FM is the way to do this. Because, spoiler alert, we've actually already watched... Season two, episode seven, mm-hmm. as we record these words. Little peek behind the production curtain. Mm-hmm. Fun for everybody. We don't always do this. We don't. This time we happened to, mm-hmm. because we should also say we have a wonderful guest yep. on the show this week, Jordan Gaspore, who is a fellow radio producer mm-hmm. and very deep thinker about mm-hmm. Six Feet Under, as you will hear. Mm-hmm. We'll get to that in just a second. But something we don't talk about in our conversation with Jordan. But Bear's discussing is green is all over the place. All over it. And I don't know if that's just Bader Meinhof, Bader Meinhof, confirmation bias, talking because it's something we've been discussing. But there's so much green in this episode, including Vanessa is wearing green. Vanessa's little baby is wearing green. Hmm. Keith is wearing green. Mm-hmm. Green is popping up everywhere all Ruth of a sudden. Ruth is wearing green. Ruth is wearing green. 
it's it's all over the place. I'm so I really want to find wherever that like you know back of the bus legend comes from with the green about it being for horniness. Yeah, there's no green in our apartment. The the meters on this recorder are green uh-huh. because it arouses me to speak to you, Adrian. Oh my god! Don't make eye contact with me when you do that. One last thing I want to uh, say to you, Adrian. As we were watching season two, episode seven, you said. If I may, tearfully, mm-hmm. I aspire to be Patricia Clarkson. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the moment that you said that? Well, yeah, because... Speaking of Ruth. As we discussed in the last episode, I am a thousand percent projecting myself and future onto Patricia Clarkson. And honestly, I hope... Reg- I don't think Regina's going to turn to Ruth. Regina's got a really good sense of humor. But I, I very much see a similar dynamic between Sarah and Ruth, between me and my middle sister, because my middle sister has babies. And, but I just, I really want to be, I don't know. I think watching this has made me be really excited about what it means to be an aunt. And right now I'm just like, my nieces are three and a month old. (laughs) So, you know, it's not like I get to bestow any of my little wisdom or be able to like really hang out in like a quality way with them, even though like playing on the trampoline with Emma is extremely gratifying. Um, Emma's the three year old. We should clarify, the not the one month old. <laughs> yeah, we. Ba- Adrian's that not that kooky of an aunt. <laughs> really high, but I didn't have that. Like my aunt, there was no emotional connection because she's not emotionally connected to herself. So I'm just, I aspire to be Patricia Clarkson in a certain way because I like that she's able to show Claire parts of herself that Ruth isn't able to access. And she's also able to really talk to Claire about Ruth in a very different light and a much more compassionate light. And in a way that I think only in aunt or an older relative could say to a younger relative, because I think that Claire really respects Sarah. I think she's like, you are fucking cool, and I I need a little bit more of this in my life. But I think that what I really admired about Sarah was Claire says something, and and Patricia Clarkson, uh, Sarah says something along the lines of like, you know, be kind to your mother because she's not very kind to herself, you know? And I just thought that was really, I just, I loved that. And yeah, she I, says, uh, she says, let's not reject her. She's, not, she's been rejecting herself. Something yeah. Something like that. And, and she may be afraid that we won't accept her. Right. So I just hope that like in moments where my nieces need clarity on their mom. Clarity. Okay, ding <laughs> All right, I'll give you that one. But when my nieces need clarity on their mom, I want to be able to show that to them. Right, somebody who can say the person that your mom is in this moment is not who she has, has always, always been. been. Mm-hmm. I've seen her. Jinx, you me But we're getting ahead of ourselves. We're getting ahead. After the break, season two, episode seven, you, us, and Jordan, get ready.
So before we get underway, Jordan, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. First time caller, long time listener. <laughs> um, I am flattered that we have any listeners, let alone long time ones. Um, tell us how you became a fan of Six Feet Under. I love horror. So initially when I found out that there was a show that was uh, about a family that had a funeral home, that was my initial draw to it. <laughs> it is not, it is horrific, but in a very different way than your standard horror would be. What kept me with Six Feet Under is still the premise, but really the stories, uh, the the intros to every single episode and the stories from those those people and that thread that runs through each episode. So the characters, I would say, it's what really got me through, but... The morbid yeah. fascination was what brought me there to begin with. So. You, you came for the death, stayed for the life after death. Exactly. It's good to see you again. We have not, uh, we, I don't think we've talked since we had coffee that time. No, since uh, before the pandemic. Pre-pandemic yeah. hangs. Oh, you guys got coffee together? We did. We did. Mm-hmm. We In ta- Brooklyn. Yes. We talked about Jordan's, let me see if I can remember this story correctly. Your grandmother ha- the 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 people who own Tito's vodka stole her house or what? something my my great great grandmother great great grandmother okay that Tito the man who founded Tito's vodka Tito himself that he purchased part of my family's property that had been in the family you know generation after generation he has my great great grandmother's diaries that's right. Because the part of the land that he bought was her childhood home. So he got everything that came with it, including her diaries that she had. And, um, you know, he does not want to give them back, which, you know, I guess it's his property. But um, it might hold some kind of clues into the psyche of my great-great-grandmother, who did indeed commit suicide, which is, you know, it's a whole other thing. Oh, my yeah. God. What? That's like the perfect... Why is that on your show? Well, I, 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 that I would like to talk to you about that, Jordan, um, at, at at a different time than this. But, um, I, that, that is, is wild, truly wild. Oh, because and then also, it's a whole thing of ownership. Like, ah, yeah. what? Ah, that's on, so good. And also, not like, that that's good, but as a story, that's amazing. Do you know what I mean? It's hard when like someone tells you something that's kind of fucked up, but then you're like, that's an amazing story, you know. For sure, you and, know. And also, like, Just what's in the diaries? What's in the diaries that he doesn't want to give them up? Like, yeah, what, like, what sentimental value does he have to that other than like it came with the house? Yeah, except being a dick, you know. Yeah. <laughs> right. Just a power play. I got a segue though. Uh, my other side of the family, great great grandmother, her last name was Fisher. Whoa! Whoa. Whoa. I yes. feel like you double segged because. This question, I mean, this fact that your great-great-grandmother committed suicide and left behind uh, perhaps some clues as to what his motivation, her motivations were, to which you do not have access, basically what happens in season two, episode seven, with Mr. 
Jeffrey Shapiro. I don't want to be fetish judgy, but if we're on this topic, like I, I feel like I do have like a weird association with it because I think I, I first heard of what is it? Autoerotic asphyxiation on like an NCIS when I was like 12. (laughs) So that was like my first introduction as to like what this is. And it blew my mind because later I would get like a gender and sexuality uh, degree. But I just was like, that is so like, how did someone figure that out and then tell other people about it? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Pre-internet. Mm-hmm. I, I too remember it being a panicky thing in the news at some point in hmm. maybe like the late nineties, something like that, that it was like the kids are, the kids are suffocating themselves while they pleasure themselves. Something must be done. Wow. Um, so I guess this would have been, if that was in fact in the late nineties, if my I'm anecdotal like, memory is true, this would have been not long after that. So not just, that six feet under is usually ripped from the headlines, but right. I it's just not think law it's, and order. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's just such a, it is so incredibly specific and like pressure specific that I'm like, how do you just stumble upon that? Do you know what I mean? Like, that's what bemused me at the time was like, and then like, adding things like the lemon and all of that stuff. I just think like the act itself is so unique. I mean, I'm curious to know your thoughts on this, Jordan, because this is of a piece with kind of a larger conversation that happens around phenomenon or phenomena like that. When we think about this period where the internet was not what it was today, how did we all know about things? It's a somehow lot of faxes. <laughs> people were faxing each other diagrams. This is what you do. This is the size discs. of the eleven exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. What do you? What do you? Yeah. What do you make of that? What do you make of those storylines? And do you remember how you used to find out about things? So how I found out actually about autoerotic asphyxiation was from my mother, not her showing me anything. It was <laughs> the lead singer of the band NXS. She was a big fan of this band. So the rumor was that the lead singer had died from autoerotic asphyxiation. And I was a small child, but she listened to the music. And oh. I remember her just randomly telling me, you know how this guy died? And then going into the spiel about what this actually was. So that's what Nate is talking so about in this episode. you have to use your imagination. It was, that's you know, a like little the scary. And I was like, oh, okay. Oh, like yeah. Somebody's doing this. You know, We're very open with each other. But yeah, maybe right. a small child should not have uh, been privy to those topics. But. I got the sex talk by it, the song It Wasn't Me when I, was, when I was 10. So it all happens when it's supposed to happen. What? I've told it wasn't you the song. me. I've told you this story. As in Shaggy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Karen turned to me and she's like, do you... We're driving to Crossgates and I was like lip syncing to... Which is a mall in close to my hometown. And my mom was driving and like Karen is cool. But I was 10 and I was like, whatever, mom. So the song comes on, Fly 92.3. And I'm like lip syncing it. And my mom turns to me and she's like, do you know what this is about? And I was like... Bleh. And I like froze in that like 10 year old kind of a way of like, I don't want to say anything because I'm embarrassed and awkward and I don't really know what I'm, I don't know what's going on. And then Karen told me the birds and the bees. So wait a minute. Thank you, Shaggy. <laughs> Thank you, Shaggy. Thank you, Shaggy. Things I did not Our expect li- <laughs> us to say in this episode. So just to recap here Anyways. so far, 
Jordan, your mom was so cool that <laughs> she was listening to In Excess and decided to give you a little primer on extreme kink. Yeah. Adrian, your mom was so cool that she just turned to you cash AF mm-hmm. when Shaggy was on Fly 92 mm-hmm. and just Point three, but yeah. bring you in to the fold. Yeah. My musical connection to this is that I was, surprising no one, a huge Dave Matthews band. <laughs> And, but I will say I never went to a live show and I never wore a puka shell necklace, not to puka shame, (laughs) but I was in the car once and I had just gotten the seminal Dave Matthews band album crash. Mm. And I was listening to it in the car because I really liked the saxophone parts Yeah, because I played the saxophone and crash into me came on and my mom was like, this is kind of sweet. And I was like, we can skip this one. <laughs> Wait, but can we analyze why? Oh, right. Yes. Why that specifically? So the guy waltzes into his house, lovely house, goes into like the gym sunroom. And I don't know. I feel like once I, and he's got the VHS tape and he's trying to gain pleasure, but then he actually like kills himself. So he ends up like, like, Plans do not go as expected. Pleasure turns into pain or pleasure turns into death. Is there anything else that we could kind of use to... I don't know. I feel like it's it's like a... It was a deadly surprise almost. For me, the biggest point of connection between the way that he died and the rest of the episode is that it seems in his wife's uncertainty about why he would have wanted perhaps to do this on purpose. It seems like there is some question about whether he really loved her. Mm. And that is very much the dilemma that Brenda and Nate are facing is, are we actually soulmates? Mm -hmm. And it is also the conversation that Margaret is mostly having with herself <laughs> about her and Byrne, realizing that she's not in fact happy to be on her own because she still feels this really strong connection mm. to Byrne. I do see that parallel. And I mean, I will just say that rewatching the episode and the wife, when she was discussing about his reasons for, for dying, why would he do this to himself? I kept shouting at the TV that he didn't do, it was not suicide. Yeah. This is not suicide. This was a complete accident. He did not mean to leave you. But there was some uh, some conversation about his job because it seemed like he had come home for a break and was going to go back to work. Yeah. That he, though, already had been sort of absent in the life of his child and his wife, which Absolutely. seemed to give credence to why he would kill himself or why he didn't care about his family. And I saw that thread running through absence. Exactly. Ooh, that's great. Do we think that Nate should have told the wife how he died? It's almost like the last episode where the wife was super insistent to see the dead body. Mm -hmm. I feel like that would give her closure because she's, she's spinning her wheels and being like, I thought we were really happy. I thought he was really satisfied with life. Like, why would he do this? And although it's like 
that's a shocking thing to hear because that's not how we would want our male lovers' husbands to go. But, like, I feel like that would have given her at least a peace of mind of, well, it wasn't that he was unhappy. I think an important difference in this episode is that, unless I missed it, I don't think Mrs. Shapiro ever directly asks. Whereas in the previous episode, the widow is insisting to be shown the body, insisting mm-hmm. to, to see the truth. And I, in this one, I think she wants to know something that can't really be known, which is what his intentions were. But she's told that it's suicide. So she, I think she just, like, takes it at face value. But do we definitively know that it wasn't suicide? Yeah. David alludes, right? I mean, when, when so there's conversations, I feel like adds to that, that, like, that adds to it, that he did not mean to do this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. With I, the lemon. Yeah, I feel like the way that it was shot kind of showed, because it was interesting, because the way it was shot at first, we, like, don't see him. At first, I was like, oh, are we seeing it, like, through his eyes again? Which I thought was very strange. And then, like, we do enter his field of vision, and he just kind of, like, blurs out. I don't know. I don't think it was intentional. Well, it's interesting, because the whole scene kind of begins in his field of vision. It starts with his POV. Yeah. We And we hear, like, his footsteps walking into the room, and then it cuts away from that yeah. at some point. Yeah, what did you what did you what did you guys make of that? I took it as because the cause of death was going to be something that maybe people could not necessarily relate to or mm. understand that this mm. was a mechanism for you to still be able as the the viewer have some kind of empathy for this person or or understand their motives a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what I took it as, especially in 2002, I think when this episode came out, like you said, no one was really, I mean, Yeah. Talk yeah, about this. that's a good point. Two other things on the autoerotic asphyxiation, and then I promise listeners we will move off it. I think it's interesting that Rico mm-hmm. is the one who explains autoerotic asphyxiation to Nate and David mm-hmm. with great authority. Yeah, he's he's true. like, let me tell you exactly how this works, including mm-hmm. including the lemon, which. I don't know if we're intended to believe in that moment that this is something Rico is also into, but what I do think it sets up is a very enjoyable piece of misdirection where Rico is is set up as somebody who, when it comes to sex, Rico knows what's going on. He's got good instincts. And then he comes home and, of course, thinking he's going to find his cousin having sex with his wife, and actually mm-hmm. he finds his cousin having sex with a man, which in Rico's words, equates to what the fucking fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then I'm also interested to know if you guys think there's any connection between ending on the Joni Mitchell song about how we have to get back to the garden and the lemon. Oh. I didn't even think about that. Good one, yeah. I don't know what the connection is, but I... In my ongoing quest to convince myself that everything in six feet under is intentional. I, I wonder if that is intentional. Oh, that's really interesting. I feel like I want to reel you back and be like, I think, that- wait, I think I just figured it out. What? Tell me. I think I just figured it out. According to Rico, mm-hmm. 
in the process of autoerotic asphyxiation, it's the lemon that jerks you back to consciousness. Mm -hmm. It wakes you up. And that's what that Joni Mitchell song is about. It's going back to the We garden. have to get back to the garden. We have to wake up. Mm. We have to remember our eternal consciousness. Hmm. Whoa. So All right. I've decided right. there is a connection. I'll give you that one. <laughs> that's really, that's really interesting. Well, let's focus on Rico waltzing in. I think that was such a good misdirection because when he's leaving the house... Vanessa is, like, a little bit more flirty and touchy and attentive to the cousin. And, like, I definitely, when Rico comes home early, again, a second, tapping out of work, going home really quickly, just like the Shapiro dude. Yep. Fact. Um, There's always a lot of, like, parallels. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. it's always happening kind of, like, subtly. Um, I totally thought he was going to be having sex with Vanessa. I was so ready for it, and I thought that was such a good misdirection. But I'm curious because I'm really curious to see how this unfolds because, like, when Rico had that conversation with David of, like, that's what men do in private. Yeah, I mean, I thought some of the visual cues with Vanessa and the cousin, too, that when she came out in her pajamas, and it was very obvious she was not wearing a bra. I mean, it's her pajamas, but... You can see her breasts and handing him the coffee or, you know, saying, I'm going to get you coffee. Here you go. And touching his arm. There were a lot of visual cues, yes, that this was being set up for him to find them having having sex in their home. Mm-hmm. And I believe Rico makes a comment, too, about why couldn't they have gone into the bathroom to do this or like why it was so public. I could have sworn he made. Did he make some comment like about how why the cousin was out in Full frontal in the living room having sex. Or he says, oh, he says Julio could have walked in or something. And, yeah. Uh, maybe I was just screaming at the TV about you could have just gone into the bathroom and locked the door and nobody would have found you and you could have heard. Um, why did you have to do this in public? Which is something I had wanted to bring up to why you think the cousin wanted to or, you know, why were they having sex out in the open? Right. Totally. It's very it's very brazen, but it is totally. also an episode about that starts with somebody exploring a uh, let's uh, this feels sort of shamey and I don't mean it this way but I don't know how else to say it, it a, a dangerous kink yeah 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 and so that that the fact that the cousin uh and his i i guess it's what his contractor are taking are being very out in the open knowing that somebody could walk in at any time and that's what makes it kind of we could perhaps infer that that's part of what's exciting about it for them yeah Ha, huh, that's a really good call. I didn't even think about that. But I'm just curious, like, is Rico going to kind of, like, swallow that? Because he doesn't tell Vanessa. He he chooses to be like, all right, you're going to think I'm a fucking weirdo, and that's fine. So I'm really curious, because he hasn't been... I think he'll probably just swallow it, because the way that he explained it in previous episodes is, like, men in my culture, they do it behind... Closed doors are very thin plastic layers. And, um, <laughs> and, but they keep it separate from like their wives and their family life. So I guess he's probably like, all right, I have to play this game now, you know? But I haven't seen him be like any more or less hostile with David, which I think is really interesting because David is like, no, this is my identity. This is who I am. And so I'm curious how he will end up rationalizing it and have. Yeah. Well, and I think also it's interesting 
with David, for Rico, homosexuality is just an idea, right? He's never seen David kiss a man. He's never True. seen David be intimate with anybody. True. Um, and this, I mean, he caught them the most in the act. You can catch people in the act. <laughs> mm-hmm. Pants down. Yeah. Pants down. Mm-hmm. Both mm-hmm. pants down. Yep. Hmm. So let's pivot then to the scene at Sarah's house where oh, she's having Sarah. her howl weekend with all of her hippie friends. And that scene is very much concerned with whether or not it is appropriate for Claire and Claire's new, the new man in Claire's life, who I don't think ever gets a I name. I don't think he gets a name. Let's call him Shaggy, since we've already talked about Shaggy and because he has kind of shaggy hair. Sure. So. <laughs> Claire and Shaggy. Claire Great. and Shaggy. Yep. That scene is very much concerned with them navigating what should we really be being confronted with this? You know, he says he's his parents' designated driver. Yeah. He's obviously been put in this very uncomfortable situation many times before. Something that I thought about in the scene where they climb up into the prayer tree house or whatever it is. Meditation center. Meditation yeah, center. Meditation. Uh I prefer prayer tree house. Sure. Um <laughs> is that Shaggy's life, his family life, seems to have been sort of the inverse of Claire's. Mm -hmm. Whereas Claire grew up around all this repression and all of this forcing down of emotion. He grew up apparently with parents who let everything out. (laughs) Um. And I thought it was interesting that they found a connection in that kind of inverse, uh, reversed polarity. Well, I don't know if you've ever been to like, I re- I think that there is a natural gravitation towards people who are your own age. And they were kind of like forced into hanging out with each other. And then we're also like, I wouldn't make out with you, you know, but I think that it was really Interesting that, like, ostensibly they didn't have sex, which is, like, you would totally assume that they would be the... So it's another misdirection of, like, who's going to get laid. That's true. Mm -hmm. That's true. It's another scene You would think, like, the horny teenagers. But no, it's, like, there's probably some type of, like, parents on shrooms, like, having a threesome in the forest, you know, or a canyon. So, (laughs) um, no, I thought that was a really interesting scene. Jordan, how do you interpret, like, Sarah? I am personally extremely fascinated by her. Oh, I think she's a great character. And the comments that were made about Claire's father, where you get a little bit more insight into who he was as a person, with Claire herself, she didn't know anything about him. Yeah. I really loved that, because especially her being the youngest and not having as long to experience life with him, I just really liked that moment, of that realization. Like, my dad might have been cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because mm-hmm. I feel mm-hmm. like around that age is when you realize that your parents are human and they're, like, very flawed. But you then do start learning, like, wait, you did what? Like, my dad told me the, the other day, we're going to Tennessee next week. And he was like, oh, I was – only time I've been in Tennessee, I slept in a ditch for 12 hours and then I kept hitchhiking to Texas. I was like, dad, what the fuck are you talking about? You know, like – I feel like they get to a certain age where it's like, well, I can't really, like, cut loose with you. So, yeah, I feel like Claire is really 
she, yeah, she's missed that opportunity to see her dad. Because there's, there's like, my parent is perfect. My parent is human and, oh, my God, they're flawed. And then, like, okay, actually, my parents are pretty cool and I can hang out with them. So she's, like, she got a tip into, like, that top one. My question is, do you think that – I thought it was really interesting that Nathaniel Sr. went to Sarah's and, like, hung out. Do you think that he went there alone or do you think that Ruth would come with him? My my initial instinct was that he was going there alone. And then that led me to think, was he having sex with Sarah? And then it led me to think like all these other strange things about his life that I really just got the feeling that he went there alone. There was no inkling from anyone that the mom came with him. Yeah. Yeah. Especially because he's like, rolling joints with his little machine like i don't think he smoked in front of ruth i had the exact same question adrian because of that the fact that their memory of him is that he was a cut up and he was really funny yeah and that he was rolling joints both things that it does not seem like he did with ruth at least that we know of um i think the implication was at minimum that he went by himself and as you guys were alluding to perhaps was involved with Sarah, except what do we think? This is a little bit of a jump, but I think it's related. What are we to take from the fact that Ruth sings the Joni Mitchell song at the end? Because one possible interpretation is that she was there with him and they all used to hang out and listen to Joni Mitchell. I mean, I hope that that was the case. That I'm just curious then why they didn't say anything about Ruth's past yeah. unless it was out of respect for her because she is still alive and thinking that she already is sort of on that precipice of having a nervous breakdown that not wanting to add to it. Well, but you're right. How does she know about this song and have the tape? Yeah, yeah. How does she I def- know this? I don't know. I, I kind of took it as, well, when would Joni Mitchell came out in like the 70s, right? Mm-hmm. I would think that they listened to it when they were little girls. And that, like, returning to the garden, returning to that, like, very childhood innocence. Let's stay with Ruth then for just a second, because I wasn't super compelled by this scene, but I do think it's worth talking about the scene where she has dinner with Robbie mm-hmm. and kind of renounces Ugh. plan thinking. And this is, she's only having the dinner with Robbie because Nikolai bailed on her and she doesn't want to have another night of eating carefully parceled out Brussels sprouts by herself. Yeah. Let's talk about that scene really quickly, actually, because I felt like that was a purposeful allusion to the woman from two, the invisible woman from two episodes ago uh... who is eating her carefully portioned dinner and chokes. Whose death affected Ruth very heavily. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they Mm -hmm. do really emphasize it. They zoom in on, like, three Brussels sprouts, you know, two potatoes. And then they zoom out to her alone in what used to be a room where kids are running around and the husband is running around. You know, like, it seems larger because of the emptiness in it. And if we want to really get gnarly... We go in the first scene where Jeffrey Shapiro dies. It goes POV Jeffrey, choke Jeffrey, mm-hmm. 
in that scene with Ruth, it's POV Ruth looking down at the plate. True. Alluding back to a scene where a woman choked to death. And this wow. whole idea of suffocation, like whether yeah. that is physical or, or yeah, mental suffocation. Hmm. But I thought this all runs through. You know, Shaggy being suffocated by his parents even. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And Brenda's worry from the last episode that she's being suffocated by Nate. Yep. But part of me was so frustrated with Ruth because, like, she obviously doesn't have any... I was really frustrated with her dinner conversation with Robbie because I feel like her and Robbie have come so far. And now she was, like, being really weird and cold towards him. And I understand that, like, her kids kind of broke it down and was like, oh, this, like, house metaphor, we're not into it anymore. I just was like, Ruth, this is why you're going to be alone. Is because, like, you're not allowing other people to connect with you. Or is it a defense mechanism, too, that not wanting to connect with people because they will either die or leave you true. in some respect. Ugh. And she just can't take that anymore. That's so true. Yeah. Mm. Um, Adrian, you pointed out during that scene that it was the first time we had heard VO from Ruth. What's VO? Voiceover. Oh, yeah. It was the first time that we heard her thoughts. Have we, Has that happened with anybody else? Other than, like a spirit of someone who has passed speaking for them. But right, or like a fantasy yeah. moment. Um, oh, no, I thought that was interesting. But I felt like I didn't need the voiceover. Ruth's face gets so... <laughs> she just always looks like she's biting on a lemon. And that I'm like, I know what you're thinking. Like, we didn't... I didn't feel like I needed the voiceover to be like, you're not into what Robbie is saying right now. Yeah. yeah. And Robbie was really opening up to her. Ugh. And then she was also like, I'm not going to ask about, like, when Claire comes home, Claire's like, aren't you going to ask me about my weekend? And she's like, no. And Claire had, like, ostensibly a relatively innocent weekend. She didn't have sex with someone who it seemed like she could have. And she didn't have one of the many drug options that were around. I guess she did drink a little bit of wine. And Ruth just is like, no, I'm not going to ask you. But what does Ruth say? She says, I found some slugs in the garden. And yeah. then later she sings about wanting to go back to the garden. Why do you think she says something about the slugs? If the garden is supposed to be this pristine, beautiful place without any sort of fault, and there are slugs there, which actually do contribute and are needed to have a healthy garden, yeah. to let you know that the garden itself is actually not... There, there are some parts that might be a little ucky to you in this place, and you know what? Ruth might be one of those things that people are like, Ugh, but she's still needed mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to have this. That's truly garden. true. Slugs are a sign of a yeah. healthy garden. Even if, yeah, you think they're disgusting. Mm. And they look gross. Like, Yeah. Yeah. And that is, I mean, I feel like the last few episodes, well, a lot of, well, basically the whole Claire and Ruth arc, I think, in the show is about Claire kind of wrestling with how much she is Ruth in some ways and like it is a product of Ruth and needs Ruth in ways that she is is hesitant to come to terms with. Hmm. I want to ask a, a somewhat tangential question um, of both of you, which is brought on by something, Adrian, you've, you've talked about a few times on the show, which is, that this that six feet under sometimes makes you think about your own relationship to 
what people ought to be doing at certain ages. Mm. And I feel like the show is really pointing at that in this episode by having Claire and Shaggy try to figure out if it's cool or lame. Yeah. <laughs> that these adults are still, you know, dropping acid and playing bongo drums all night long. Um, so, I don't know, did, did it ping those receptors at all for you? That's really interesting because I do remember being a teen and thinking that smoking weed is a phase that you, like, eventually grow out of. And then I caught, then I found a joint in my basement that was very much from my father. And I was like, oh, maybe you don't grow out of it. <laughs> so it definitely, I do have like a weird thing of like things need to be done by certain ages. But now as I've gotten older, I don't know, I think that my relationship has like really shifted with that. Um, but yeah, I used to be, and I think that that's like as a teen, watching that like watching that through Claire and Shaggy's eyes I would also be kind of confused it's like why haven't you grown out of that yet but now as somebody who like is older I totally get that like every once in a while I might want to do something you know and it's not it doesn't seem like this is such a regular occurrence for all of them you know like they even plan it where Shaggy's like oh this happens every year you know I'm always the DD so, yeah, I mean, I have a similar weed story, too, that I remember finding my mom's pipe and asking her what this was. And when she told me thinking, yeah, like, aren't you like you're over 30? Like, why are you still smoking weed? Like, this is stuff that teenagers do and not like getting angry at her, like as an adult, like trying to be the adult figure yeah. and telling her what she should do. But yeah, now that I, you know, I am 30 and realizing like, hey, people, you know, there are there aren't time stamps to things especially like Nate and Brenda and wanting to get married or feeling like they they need to get married and I feel like that's an age thing too for them plays a role and at 32 having my family questioning like when are you going to get married hmm. all of this sort of stacks up and like I I initially saw the whole run of six feet under as a kid it played late at night on Bravo and I would stay up and watch. So my perspective from child watching it as an adult watching it completely, like I have a lot more empathy for these characters. And mm. in this episode in particular, we're like, there is no timestamp on when you should be doing things. <laughs> Please don't let there be. Cause yeah. I don't want there to be a timestamp. Yeah. <laughs> no, I have a question about what I thought was going to be another misdirection is Nate has not told Brenda yet about his condition. Did you think he was going to tell her when he goes over to her place and she's wearing like this silk gown and she's like, pretend that you're breaking into my house. You know, like she's trying to be super sexy for him. Did you think like, I'm curious how you interpret that scene. I didn't think he was going to say anything to her in that scene. And that's only because that I just thought personally, like myself, I wouldn't have said anything to her. She's a loose cannon. And I don't think at that point that I would get, and I don't think Nate would get anything out of, anything positive out of saying anything. Do you think he's not telling her because he's like, I actually don't know how she's going to respond? I think so. Yeah, I really think that she could go one extreme to the other that... Yeah. You know, I'm 
I definitely yelled at the TV too. Like you do not need to get married. Like you, uh, <laughs> right now that I know everything, I mean, watch this whole series. I'm like, just break up for the love of God. Yeah. <laughs> Cause then they have sex and it's like, she's so clearly not there. And he's like, yeah. I love you. I love you so much. I love you. And she's like harder. Fuck me harder. Yeah, you know, that, that's that scene is like the richest possible illustration so far of this dynamic. We've been talking about for a couple episodes now yeah. where Nate is like, I just want to have intimacy and connection. And Brenda's like, I just kind of want to feel like I don't know who you are. <laughs> I That's so funny. Yeah, 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 yeah. And she does keep having this like, well, we actually do. So let's focus on Brenda because. She does have this repeating theme of, like, strange men coming up, having sex with her, like, finding her. Including and Nate. Including how they, they met to begin with. Exactly. Like, I wasn't Whoa. so surprised. That's when we, when they shot to her in the truck or whatever, which yeah. does t- turn out to be a fantasy. Like, I immediately thought about the first time that they mm-hmm. hooked up with each other. Mm-hmm. And... And, you know, if that's what Brenda is into or that's, like, what she needs right now, that's totally fine. I don't feel like she's really articulating her needs to Nate, you know? And he's, like, because it's funny because they're also having, like, missionary sex, with which, like, is great. But it's also, like, the most basic kind of sex that you could be having. And she's, like, I kind of want something a little bit more risky. I kind of want a little bit more thrill to it. Going back to, um Right. You know, she's like, I want more of that, and he's not giving it to her. But then we do get her, like, laughing at the fact that she gave this guy a hand job. you know? Mm-hmm. Which, again, mm-hmm. I think was, like, her – she does admit that, like, her escort friend has been, like, rubbing off on her, which is fine. And yeah. – but I just thought it was so interesting because she, like, doesn't really go any deeper. You know, she doesn't really go any deeper than, like – I gave him a hand job and I crossed the line. I, and I was like, Brenda, your parents are psychoanalysts. Like, I know there is more depth here. I know it wasn't just across the line. Isn't that a funny story? Something I thought about in that scene that hadn't occurred to me previously is that part of the way Brenda was maybe able to rationalize that moment with the client in her mind was that it was part of her job. That the guy was asking for it without actually verbally asking for it, that he seemed to want it to happen and that it's, it's something that she knows is on the spectrum of things that happen in massage environments. And so maybe that was because she's been having these conversations with Melissa who says, I think literally it's just a job Mm. that that's part of her rationalization to herself about like, well, maybe that's all it was. But then we see her in the car realize that, no, no, she wants to have this totally anonymous account encounter with the guy in the truck and that this isn't just something that happened in the, came up in the framework of her work. It's something more that she's oh, craving. But you said something so interesting, Adrian, which I had not considered. She, this is, I think, the first time we see her directly ask Nate for what she wants. Yeah. She says, I want you to pretend I don't know who you are and you're breaking in. I, that's what I want. She's so explicit with him, and she usually is so coy. Comes like, at everything from a slant and yeah. head gamey about it. I don't know. 
I, I, well, what does he do? He says he doesn't do what she asked know. for. There was no conversation, really. Yeah. It was just like, no, we're going to have boring sex. Maybe it's not boring. She looked bored. No, I feel like I can say boring sex. She looked a little bored. She looked bored. So, but wait, let's keep focusing on Brenda and her mom. How did we, Jordan, how did you interpret when Brenda goes over to her house, her new house? Where the mom makes it all about her and tells her to get out. Yeah. Situation. Yeah. I mean, I think that is more clues into why Brenda is the way she is and her feelings on marriage and her feelings on men. And also the, what does she have to do to get attention? I mean, what, what do you really have to do to be able to, to have your parents pay attention to you it all just sort of like connected the dots uh, a little bit more about who brenda is as a person um and so i mean i thought that was a very powerful scene too and was i mean even like emotional i mean to me personally in a sense we're thinking about though that your relationship with your mother especially as a woman too and how you talk about your personal relationships with them Hmm. and the tendency Hmm. sometimes too for even my own mother to turn the conversation to more about her and like what that can, can do like shifting the power balance. That's really interesting. Cause I see my mom and my grandmother in that moment. And my grandmother is the, is Margaret. I like the moment Margaret comes on the scene. I'm like, Oh my God, it's Sylvia. But I thought it was also really interesting because like we set the mom up to be like, oh my God, she is so narcissistic and it's all about herself, but she knows when to call Brenda on her shit. And she was like, don't take care of me. I'm not Billy. But that's also interesting because then it's like, well, then Margaret, who the fuck was going to take care of Billy because you weren't? Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. So. In that sense, and I had not considered this until this very moment, perhaps it is, in addition to the Billy factor, in terms of Brenda's relationship with intimacy, of course she does not want to, she doesn't have a good relationship with um, people in her life who want to have a a direct emotional connection with her because whenever she tries to make one with her own mom, she gets stiff-armed. Oh, that's so true. Which that combined with the Billy piece of it, I think explains a lot about what we're seeing from Brenda in this in this recent stretch of episodes. Wow. I loved the scene where Brenda and Melissa are just chilling, like girlfriends. And I was With like, their hummus. Yes, Brenda just, needs that. And I just feel like I love Melissa. That's all I wanted to say. I felt like a real I don't know how to describe it, but it felt coming from someone who has like a lot of female friendships, like that felt very real. Yeah, and I liked, too, in that scene that they kind of implicitly acknowledged how little of that Brenda has in her life when Nate comes in yeah. and he says, where did you guys meet? Like, yeah. what? Like, Brenda, you have friends? Yeah, you know? it's so sad, but yeah. It is, it is. But mm. Nate has n- no friends. Yeah, totally. Nate has no friends. No, Ugh. not even his own brother. I wouldn't count as his friend. Yeah, I wouldn't count David as friend. Oh, yeah. my God, we haven't talked about David yet. Yeah, let's oh. let's do the David and Keith piece oh. of this. This episode starts with a scene you well after the Michael Shapiro scene. Jeffrey Shapiro, excuse me. A scene you could swear mm-hmm. was literally a David wet dream because oh. he's soaking wet. 
and it's a Keith dream. It's a David wet dream. That's so good. <laughs> well, I guess it is still a David wet dream. It is a David. That's wet so and Dave, good. And Keith's dream. <laughs> yeah. What do we? Hmm. I mean, I loved all of it because I want David and Keith to get back together more than anything. And I think that, like, obviously, David really shows up in that moment when they find out that Taylor is sick. Um, I don't know. I feel like Keith obviously still just doesn't want to admit that he's still in love with David. And that David is probably really good for him. You know? I feel like they are a yin and a yang. And whereas Keith pushes and is self-righteous and everything. I don't really perceive David as being a doormat, though. Well, but he and Keith also haven't spent a lot of time together recently. So that's true. Keith does not know the new and improved. Oh, that's know David so true. 3.0. Because like he used to be a doormat when people would shout like homophobic things. Yeah. Oh, that's so true. But yeah, David doesn't do that anymore. Question for you, Jordan. And I should say, as we talk about this, Adrian, uh, I can't remember if you know this or not, has not seen the show. So uh, no spoilers in your response. Okay. Um, okay. In terms of how this all plays out. I'm but. So pure. Um, what do you make of, the, especially as somebody who has already seen the show, something that I had forgotten about is the way they, when Keith was a character initially, he was always a character that existed in response and reaction to situations that other characters were in. He was never the instigating force in any scene. And now over the last few episodes, there were, he's being brought on stage much more as a character with his own inner life, his own demons, and his own quest that he is on. And I'm struck by how, I guess, well handled that is in the writing. It doesn't feel abrupt to me. It feels like we already had such a clear sense of who he was a, as a person that it doesn't feel like it's being shoehorned. Uh, do you agree? Yeah, I do agree. No, and I think I, and I think that is very telling of this show as opposed to other shows too, and how they were able to make that move without really, you'd have to think about it for it to realize, oh, I'm learning more about Keith now. Okay. And I saw, especially in this episode, that move to having it more about Keith than David necessarily, still playing into that theme because, so you said Taylor gets sick and you know, and Keith doesn't believe her for the longest time that she actually is sick until she actually has to be hospitalized there. I saw that, that not believing that someone is sick or not believing that there are, there is a problem also through a bunch of other different characters, including the Shapiro character. The not to say that his death or his fetish or that act is something sick. It is that he was dealing still with issues of his own that no one was wanting to believe. Even the idea of did he kill himself or not and people not wanting to, to come to terms with that. I saw that all through. And I think that Keith as a character was the good authority figure. I mean, yes, he is a cop, but also like a good authority figure to like be that at the center of, of sort of all of these not believing situations here. That's so true. I mean, a burst appendix is literally something inside you that is begging to come out. And that's what everybody's dealing with in this episode. Hmm. 
one aspect that I thought was interesting with um, Nate's relationship with the female rabbi, where oh God, also they, they, they alluded to, you know, he was hitting on her. And, you know, she made some comment to like, I wouldn't date you or you're not my type. Or there was some back and forth. And he was like, how, why would you think that I would date you? This was during the wake situation. And great time to pick someone up. I mean, yeah, right. Weddings and funerals. That's the best time. Yeah. Uh, but I was just curious to get your thoughts on why that was even like, I get that the person who died is Jewish, but they didn't have to have any sort of plot line where nate seeks out a rabbi why did they do that like it seemed like he sought out wanting advice from her but they didn't have to write that in totally i think it was like the first time that nate is able to have a real heart to heart with somebody who like also deals with this kind of thing on a regular basis as in like the contemplation of death and mortality and through, like, a religious lens that he doesn't always get. Um, and then also, I think he was like, this lady's kind of hot, and I kind of want to keep talking to her. <laughs> and But I do genuinely think that he wanted her advice and her interpretation of, like, how do I deal with this? And I think she was there to kind of put plant this seed of, like, is Brenda your soulmate? Like, is that, you know, she, the rabbi, clearly believes in that. And... That's beautiful, but I think she's, I don't know. I feel like because then it cuts to Nate and Brenda in bed together. And I think that maybe now that I'm contemplating a little bit more, I don't think that Nate was like thinking, oh, I should tell Brenda right now. I think he was looking at her and being like, are you my soulmate? You know, I think doubt has been planted. For me, the answer to why it was important for him to have this interaction with a Jewish woman specifically has to do with her line about he comes, he's seeking counsel from her and he says, or she says, I'm happy to talk to you, but you should know that Jews have a tendency of answering questions with more questions. Yeah. And that is the truth of what Nate needs to reckon with here is that, Nobody is going to come out and tell him, Mm. this is what you should say to Brenda. This is why you're afraid to say it. This is why she won't say I love you back to you. That like, this is, this is why this is heavy work to do. And there are specific coping mechanisms. Here they are. He, for a while now, I think has been looking for answers that nobody's going to give him. Starting with when he gets the AVM and he has that. I can't remember if it's a fantasy or not in this moment, but he shouts at the doctor, like, just tell me what to do. Tell me how to fix it. And the mm-hmm. doctor says, like, there's no answer for that. I don't know what's yeah, going to happen. that's really good. He's dealing with so much uncertainty. And so to have him have to bring that concern to a Jewish spiritual leader and a a woman specifically, him being heterosexual, I think does feel narratively justified to me, I think. Yeah, no, for sure. And especially the uh, question with the question. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think this is, I mean, it's, uh, it's, a, it's an ongoing theme for Nate, mm-hmm. seeking out different religions and yeah. different spiritual practitioners to try to find the answer. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Which is also something that he's kind of doing for us, the watcher, you know, is like we're able to live through his questioning of mortality without actually having to have those like real eye contact conversations. Yeah. So he's almost doing it for us. And I do think it's interesting that we see him contend with all this in the same episode as we see Claire going back to the site of Nate, the the loss of Nate's innocence. That's um, right. Right. And the, the, the place where the messiness of sexuality, the messiness of relationships, the manipulation, the, the power dynamics and the, the lack of clarity was ostensibly first introduced to him, at least in a visceral way. Mm. Wow. Jordan, it is customary on the show to conclude the conversation with Adrian asking you two very hard-hitting questions. Mm -hmm. Are you ready? I am ready. First one's easy. Which character do you identify with? Or... 100%. One hundred percent. Wow, not <laughs> As a child to now, it's really strange that rewatching. I was like, I'm still. Are you an elder? Are course. you the eldest? I am an only child. You're an only. Oh, wow. <laughs> Interesting. For all his faults, everything about him, having seen the whole show, knowing it all, I'm still team Nate. Interesting. So here's a question then. Have the parts of Nate that you feel resonance with changed? Or are you drawn to the same parts of him that you were drawn to when you first encountered him? I think they've slightly changed the parts that resonated. His talking about the the search for answers is initially what drew me to him, even as a child. Mm. That besides the journalism question, just the questions that he is asking completely drew me to him. I think the parts that have changed is being a little bit more negative toward how he reacts in relationships, that there are things that I think he's too, a little too reactionary. Hmm. And I don't think that he takes the time to think things and process things through. Mm-hmm. And, and so that aspect of, of that character has has changed where I was, you know, as a kid completely, like, I think the, the fault that I would have besides also finding that actor attractive. So full disclosure too, which is a weird thing. Um, is right. He's right. Okay. Okay. I'm not, I'm not crazy here. I also find David to be really attractive too. I do too. Michael C. Hall. I'm a fan. Really (laughs) unique. But in like a, you are uniquely beautiful. Cause I don't, I'm not usually attracted to like, and he has an amazing voice too. Michael C. Hall. Such a good, Anyways, yes. Us. Hmm. Michael C. Hall, call us. Call <laughs> All us. of us. <laughs> um, my second question is, do you believe, what do you think happens when we die? I would like to think that there is something else out there. And that as someone who, for a number of years, believes in reincarnation, I think that is the closest that I can think of between the belief in science and the belief in spirituality is, you know, matter can't be created or destroyed. That is the closest thing I can think of is that we are reincarnated. And then what happens when this planet completely goes to shit? I don't know when there are no more. I don't I don't know what's going to happen. But the reincarnation belief is what allows me to be able to step outside this door. Um, so 
Well, what does... What life are you in right now? No, just like uh, Second, maybe. Maybe. You know. That's exactly what that Joni Mitchell song that ends the episode is about. She <laughs> says, we are ancient stars. We are, we are carbon. Wait, that's Full really circle. good. Ugh. Now, wait. There is another unintentional tradition that I have to continue, which is that I have been reading this amazing book. It's called Gilead. It's by Marilyn Robinson. And it keeps being so related to these conversations. And I keep not remembering it until the very end of these conversations. And that means I have to go get it. So go give me it. one second. Mm-hmm. Was there Is anything a, a Handmaid's Tale situation with Gilead? No, I know. I thought what? that too. Um, it has nothing to do with the Handmaid's Tale. So Gilead is about this old pastor who is dying. His name is the Reverend John Ames. And one of the things that's happened, it's, it takes place in the mid-late 50s. And one of the things that's happening is as he approaches the end of his life, people from his congregation are bringing things to his house to try to make him more comfortable. And one of the things they bring is a television. And he says, I don't enjoy it myself. It's not the last impression I want to have of this world. And I thought that was interesting in the context of this episode because they make such a big deal that we stay in Jeffrey Shapiro's POV when he dies, that his last impression of the world is this blurry porno scene. And I found that so sad, especially in an episode that, as we were talking about, is very much about a lack of access to true intimacy, whether mm-hmm. emotional or, or physical. Oh my God, we should stop watching so much television. <laughs> I know, now that makes me think, right? I, I don't want the last thing that I see to be... I know. Elsewhere, elsewhere in, in the book, this character talks about how he prefers listening to baseball games on the radio because watching them on TV is a two-dimensional experience. Okay, did you write this book? <laughs> I'm beginning Spoiler to doubt alert, that like there this is, is no actually, Marilyn Robinson. Right. I'm beginning to think <laughs> that this is just your journal. Thank you folks for listening to Fisher Family Ghosts. We're so happy to have you oh so happy to be in your headphones or on your car speakers or on your smart speakers. As always. If you enjoyed what you heard, please visit the Apple Podcast directory and leave us a rating and a review. It would be most appreciated and help Mm -hmm. more listeners find us. You listening right now, you guys are our favorite listeners, but couldn't hurt to invite a few more people to the party. You know what I'm saying? There's so much space. If you would like to hear more of Adrian's voice, it is very easy for you to do that. Isn't it, Adrian? Mm Mm-hmm. I have another podcast. It's called Strangers Abroad, and it is a narrative travel podcast, and I'm currently working on a series about mine and Sam's road trip across America, but after that, I'm going to be doing a bi-weekly story, so one individual. So if anyone out there has any travel stories that they would like to share, you can email me at strangersabroadpodcast at gmail.com. I would really appreciate that. As someone who has placed a story into Adrienne's care, I can vouch for the fact that she is a wonderful listener and draws the very best 
out of you as you share your story and as a a trustworthy and wise steward of your experience. Thanks, honey. Sam was on my coincidences episode, if anyone is interested. Anybody ever wake up one day and decide to drive to Cleveland and meet a fellow podcaster this fella did. in the ballpark at an, uh, an Indians game? That happened to me. You can hear about it on Strangers Abroad. Please check out my other show, Family Ghosts. Okay, that's everything. Wonderful being with you as always. We'll talk to you next week.